uh, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to, we, we, we took a little, uh, we, we hit verse 8 several weeks ago and we took a little, little detour to just nail some things about the last days. We believe that the things that are talked about in the book of Revelation, we believe that we're living in the very throes of those events. We believe that as verse, uh, verse 3 says, we believe the time is at hand, as verse 1 talks about in Revelation 1. We believe that these are things that will indeed shortly come to pass. And so in light of what he talks about in verse 8, we, we just kind of took a little bit of time to talk about the time that we're living in and what the Bible has to say about some of those things. But now we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace considerably this morning. In fact, uh, Pastor Frank is out of town uh, this morning. He's speaking at a youth camp in Kansas this next week. And, of course, uh, we want to be praying for Frank on that. But uh, we'll be we're covering some major ground this morning. In fact, and tonight, believe it or not, we are actually going to get out of chapter 1 by the time this day is all over. So we're biting off quite a bit. We're going to get as far as we can this morning. But, but I want you to catch the heart of what this passage is all about. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you, you know, sometimes as a, as a preacher, as someone who's going to stand before people with the responsibility of, of teaching others, you're looking at that passage, and, and though you understand the specific things that it's saying, sometimes, I'll just tell you, sometimes it's hard to to grab a hold of that thing, to present it in a, in a message that is going to apply to people's lives. And so I, I took a long time, over the last several weeks, knowing the passage is coming and doing all the cross-referencing, all of those, those things, and, and, and yet trying to get what is it that the Lord is wanting to, to say to First Baptist Church as we cover this material. And what I began to, to see here is that John had an appointment with God. He had an appointment. And you know what? When God sets an appointment, nobody misses it. John, check this out, y'all. He's caught up from where he was on the planet into the very presence of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does in this chapter is he begins to tell us about that appointment that he had with God and what it was that just absolutely overwhelmed him once he got there. And do you realize, I don't care who you are this morning, I don't care what you believe about the Bible, I don't care what you believe about God, I don't care what you believe about Jesus Christ, you know, Every single one of us are going to keep this same appointment that John had. Every single one of us are going to show up for that same appointment. The Bible says every single one of us will stand before God in judgment. We're all going to be there. The things that you're going to see in this passage today through the eyes of faith, one of these days... Again, regardless of what you believe, you will see these same exact things that the Apostle John is writing about. And in light of that, we need to prepare ourselves. 
for some of us it's going to mean we're going to need to listen today to see if these things be so so that you can respond in obedience to what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded for every single one of us. A lot of you don't know him this morning, and you need to respond in obedience to what he's calling for. The vast majority of the folks in this room, we have understood his message. We have responded in obedience, and yet nonetheless, we too will show up, and we will see the same exact things that John saw And I want you to see his reaction. We won't get to this until tonight. But look at verse 17. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Folks, it was that incredible. It will be that incredible for every single one of us. Amen? And in light of that, I feel like the Lord has laid all of this out for us to have an opportunity to see Him now through the eyes of faith so that we can prepare ourselves for that time when we too see face to face the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, this morning, would you please help us to see you for who you really are? Pray that these truths will will rock our lives and change us for your glory's sake. Amen. So John goes, he sees this. This is the revelation that he has of the glorified Christ. And let's look, first of all, at the recipient of the revelation, number one on your study sheet. And of course, we talked in detail about this in the early weeks of this study. The recipient of the revelation, of course, was the Apostle John, the one referred to in Scripture as the beloved disciple. And in verse 9, John gives us some key things to note about his identity as the recipient of the revelation. Notice that verse 9 says, first of all, I, John, who also am your brother. Now, now just just stop right there. I, I know how it is, y'all. We, you know, we're trying to read through the Bible you know, in a year's time, and so we come through that, and yeah, 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 we've got all those details down, no problem understanding that, but I'm just telling you. You read what he just said there in verse 9, and what you find out is this dude, John, is an absolute trip. I mean, here, here is, here's John, and let, let's, let's get some, some things nailed here. At this point in John's life, he's, he's somewhere between 85 and 90 years old, Okay? Of course, as a young man, you'll you'll remember that for three and a half years, he walked with the Lord Jesus Christ by sight as one of the twelve apostles. And at the point when John is writing here the book of Revelation, this is now some 60 years later. He's still been walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, no longer by sight like he did for that three and a half year period, but for now 60 years, this guy has been walking with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and at the point of this writing, John is the only one of the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles, who is remaining. All of the others have already been martyred for the cause of Christ. They've already given their lives in service for Him and died for the name of Jesus Christ. But you'll remember that with John, not only did he have the unbelievable privilege of being one of the twelve John was also part of one of the inner circle of three. 
along with James and Peter. Do you remember that? And you'll remember it was those three who witnessed miracles that none of the other disciples ever witnessed. It was that circle of three that John was a part of who who heard things that the other disciples never heard in their entire lifetime. It was those three who experienced things that none of the other disciples ever experienced. And yet, even of those three, John was the one who had the most intimate relationship with the Lord. And we've gone into detail about that, how that at the Last Supper, Jesus informs His disciples of the fact that one of them is going to betray Him. And what the Scripture says is that while all of the other disciples are are coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? That's not the question that John had. John asked the Lord, Lord, who is it? He may not have had the discernment to be able to tell who it was going to be that would betray him, but John knew who it wasn't going to be. He knew it wouldn't be him. And you'll remember at that Last Supper, remember how we've talked about the fact that Jesus laid his head, the Scripture says, on Jesus' breast. And there he had the privilege of all privileges. He had the privilege that no other person in human history has ever had. He laid his head on the breast of Jesus and he heard the very heartbeat of God. He was that intimate disciple. You'll remember that that at the cross... John is the only one of the disciples that followed him all the way there. And because of that, not only did he have the the privilege of all privileges that we talked about, laying his head on Jesus' breast, but there at the cross, do you remember? He also received the responsibility of all responsibilities as Jesus looked down from that cross and he commissioned him. He, He gave him the responsibility of the watch care of his very own mother. In fact, if you go back and if you read the account, what you'll find is the last person that Jesus Christ looked at on this planet before he closed his eyes in death on the cross was the Apostle John. Now guys, I've gone through all of that just to remind you. This guy is an incredible guy. This guy has seen it all. He's heard it all. He's done it all. And now, I mean, here he is after all of that, and now John has become the recipient of the most incredible revelation that any man in all of history has ever received. He has just become an eyewitness of the most unbelievable thing that any man has ever been able to see and been permitted to write about. And now he picks up his pen, and he's about to write about it, And he's going to write about it for every generation for the next 1,900 years to be able to read and to to just step back at what he had written and and, and just stand there in amazement and and wonder. And of all of the accolades that he could have used to describe himself, of all of the subtle little details that, that we just talked about that he could have thrown in to remind us of how privileged a person he was and how honored a person he was, how uh, how unique of a person he was. John picks up his pen and he shows how truly unique he really was. He takes up his pen and he simply refers to himself after all of that as 
your brother. I, John, who also am your brother. I mean, you, you got to love it. I mean, after experiencing spiritually what this man experienced, you know what John's letting us know here? After that incredible spiritual experience in the heavenlies, he still had his feet on the ground. John never lost sight of who he was. And you see, guys, now listen. That's the point. You see, once, once you've seen the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, you are so humbled by the awesomeness of His person and the awesomeness of His presence, you don't, after you've seen that, you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You don't think of yourself as being above somebody else. You don't concern yourself with titles and past accomplishments and, and positions. You don't promote yourself after you've seen the glorified Christ. You don't go around blowing your own horn. You know what? If you ever, if you ever get to the point where you think that because the Lord has allowed you to, to be a, a part of, of something, to, to do something, or, or to be in His book and to, to begin to see some truth or to stand before a group of people and expound some truth or, or you're, you're, you're a part of some mighty move of the Holy Spirit that is resulting in the salvation of souls or, or whatever the case is, and because of these things you begin to think that you've, you've moved into a, a level above the rest or you, or you find yourself beginning to compare yourself with, with those around you or you find yourself trying to, to work your spiritual accomplishments into the conversation without you know, trying to seem like you're promoting yourself, you know, where, where you're, you're having to concentrate on ways to, to sound humble. You, you know what I'm talking about? To where all, you know, you, you're looking at all these things that God's doing in your life, and, and so we don't want to come through and we don't want to you know, come to these things and start talking about the, all the great things that I've done. We don't even want to start talking about all the great things that the Spirit of God has done to us, so we find humble ways to share over the conversation all the things that we really would like for this person to know so that it will elevate us into a position to where we will be thought of in their eyes as elevated or higher. Listen, you ever get to the place where you start thinking because of all the things God's doing in your life, you're somebody else. You're, you're, you're something big or you're, you're something to be admired or whatever. You know what? Before you ever start moving down that path, you know what? You know what? John is a great reminder to all of us here in verse 9. He is a great reminder that before we ever get ourselves moving down that path, and some of you, no doubt, have moved into that whole arena, and what we need to come to is verse 9 where John is letting us know that what we really need is we need to get a fresh and vivid glimpse of the risen and glorified Christ because after seeing Him for who He really is, you know what? It has a way of leveling us. You know what? In His presence, folks, do you understand? There isn't a one of us that is any higher than anybody else because you know what happens when we get in His presence just like John? We are all seeking to get just as absolutely low as we can possibly get. 
We are all leveled in the presence of Jesus Christ. Nobody's talking about all their great accomplishments. Nobody's throwing around, well, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm Reverend whatever. Nobody's throwing around titles. Nobody's talking about all the things they've done. There's humility. And you know, I'll I, I tell you, I, I, you know, I'm studying all of this and just coming through it and just letting all of this stuff settle down into me just through this, this guy's simple little introduction of himself here. You know what? I think this is coming at a, at a real good time for us in our fellowship. Because there's a lot of you folks who have, who have had the opportunity of winning people to Christ recently. Since we've been, been praying that the Lord would open doors of utterance for us for the, for the gospel's sake, what's been happening is, man, a lot of you folks have, have begun to, to bear fruit in your life. And and there are some of you folks that along with that, man, you're, you're starting to, to get into this book and, and it's starting to come together for you. A lot of the principles of Bible study, those, those keys of Bible study we've been learning together for the last several years, you know what's beginning to happen for a lot of you? Those keys are starting to unlock things in the Bible that you never saw before. Some of you have stacked up quite a few missions trips under your belts now. And now you can go into another culture and, and you feel comfortable discipling there. You feel comfortable giving the gospel in, in other cultures. And, and, and some of you, through all of these things, are beginning to find yourself being promoted around here into positions of, of, of leadership. And now listen, y'all. All those things are wonderful. All those things are great. And praise the Lord for all of those things. But listen, those are also the things that can cause you to begin to think that you're something special and begin to look around and think, boy, you know what? I wish that we had a church full of people that are just like me. You know what? Why you can still get your spiritually, or your inflated spiritual head through the back doors, and before you fall into the snare of Satan, if you're beginning to think that you're something around this place, you're, you're just a, a, a notch above the rest you know what you need to cry out to God today for forgiveness you need to, to ask him like we were saying just a minute ago to open your eyes to see him for who he really is so you can begin to see yourself for who you really are you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6 he said I saw the Lord high and lifted up then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Folks, if you ever lose that position of humility, we've lost our effectiveness for Jesus Christ. And one of the things that kept John so real and so useful to God all of his life was he never saw himself as above anybody else. The most exalted position that he could think of, he gives to you in verse 9. You know what, guys? This is John here. I, I'm simply your brother. And we won't go into a lot of detail on, on this, but, but Jesus' statement in verse 9 also lets us know another very key thing that we, that we do need to talk about. Folks, listen, at, at the end of the first century, when the revelation of God to man was complete, 
do, do you see here? God had absolutely no intentions whatsoever of there being some kind of ecclesiastical hierarchy in his church. Because listen, at this period of time, if there would have been anybody on this planet who could have held a position of control when this book was written, it would have been John. Remember what we just talked about? He's the only one of the twelve that is remaining, and John is very careful to make sure that nobody could in any way, shape, or form have the slightest impression that he held a position over anybody else. His greatest position was simply in being our brother in Christ. He doesn't even at this point, he doesn't even talk about the fact of his apostleship. You know why? Because the foundation of the church has been laid. And at this point, God's got one more book he wants to add to his revelation. He's going to give it to John. But John does it from the standpoint of simply being our brother, your brother. But notice in verse 9, he not only identifies himself as your brother, he also identifies himself very simply and very humbly once again as your companion. And first of all, he says, your companion in tribulation. He says, I, John, who am your companion in tribulation. And what I'm wanting you to see there is that this is a given. Do you see that? John just assumes that if you're his brother, that is, that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and thus have God as your Father, and so you are brothers and sisters, as it were, with everyone else who has God as their Father. John just assumes that if you know the Lord, that you're also his companion in tribulation. Because you see, John himself is the one that recorded the words in John chapter 16 and verse 33 when he taught us, in the, that when Jesus taught us, that in the world we shall have tribulation. He knew what the Lord had taught through Paul to the believers in the early church in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 that we, listen to it, that we must through tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. He knew, John knew what Paul had written to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Yea, and all all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. John knew what the Lord had laid down through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where Peter writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice, listen, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. You see, John knows that you'll be his companion in tribulation because he knows that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be a partaker of Christ's suffering. That's what Peter wrote. So you see, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, one thing is true. You suffer tribulation. You suffer persecution because that is what our commander-in-chief suffered when he was on this planet. And the Bible says, don't think it's strange when the same thing happens to you because you are a companion. You are, part uh, part are, part mm. you are a partaker in Christ's suffering. And what's interesting is the same basic w word, same root word there, companion 
partaker. Same word that John used over there. Peter is using in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Guys, listen. John could not have fathomed a believer in Jesus Christ who didn't experience tribulation. Now, I don't know what, what's going on in your life right now, but man, doesn't it help you to know that when you are going through the midst of difficult times in your life, times of suffering, times of persecution, times of tribulation, I mean, doesn't it do something for you to know that every true believer in Jesus Christ, every believer in this entire church is also going through the same exact thing? I mean, I, I know the circumstances may not be in, the, in the, the same package. It, it may be a whole different set of things that are going on in their life. But listen, every other believer in Jesus Christ is our companion in tribulation. And you see, it's important to know that because one of the key strategies that Satan uses when we're in the big thick of tribulation, you know what it is? He wants to make us feel that we're all alone. And nobody knows the pain that I'm experiencing. And nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can relate to what I'm... Nobody's got it as tough as I've got it. And I want you to know this morning, you're not alone. Again, I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know this morning, you are seated in the midst of hundreds and hundreds of people that are around you who are your companions in tribulation. They're going through, again, different stuff, but it's the same exact result. They're partakers of Christ's suffering, companions in tribulation. And I don't know about you, but knowing that helps me. I, there, there's nothing worth it, worse than that isolationism where you, you're off over here and you just feel like, is there anybody that knows what's happening? And John says, I'm your brother and I'm your companion in tribulation. But not only that, he also talks about the fact that he is our companion in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, we, we at times, you know, we, especially when you're in the, going through the suffering, you're going through the persecution, you're going through the tribulation, you know, during those times, it may look from the human side, it may look and it, it may feel like Satan is really the one that's calling the shot and the shots, and he's he's really the one that's on top. But what John lets us know here is that even through those times of tribulation, Jesus Christ is still on the throne and we are companions in his kingdom. And our king has promised us that the tribulation that we're going through, he's going to use to work for us, not against us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Most of you know this. And we know. Here's something that we know. Here's something we can bank on. And we know that all things work together for God to them that love God, or for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says that we rejoice, listen, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Let me ask you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I know this. You're going through tribulation. Are you glorying in it? 
that's what Paul writes. Oh, we, 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 we glory in God. But he says, I want you to know something. We also glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And coincidentally, coincidentally enough, look, look at the third thing that John says in verse 9 that we're companions in. We're companions in the patience of Jesus Christ. Now, turn back just a couple of pages to the book of James, if you will. James chapter 1. Now, let, let me ask you something as you're turning. Can you endure tribulation? Can you endure it knowing that what God is working in you is the patience of Jesus Christ? That's what John is talking about back there. We are companions in the patience of Jesus Christ. Can you endure knowing that through your trials and your sufferings and your tribulation, you're becoming a companion in the patience of Jesus Christ? You see, that's why James says in James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. In other words, when the bottom drops out of everything in your life and you're in the big fat middle of tribulation and everything seems like it's working against you, during those times, count it joy. You say, come on, man. How do you, how do you count it joy when, when you're facing life with those kind of circumstances? Verse 3 goes on. Knowing this. That, that's exactly what Paul just said back in Romans chapter 5. We glory in tribulations knowing. And you know what? Same exact thing that he talked about. You better know what's going on during those tribulations knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh, here it is, patience. You say, hey, well, big deal. I, I really wasn't, you know, looking for patience in the first place. Verse 4 says that if you let it, you see, here's why it's so key, y'all. If you let patience, if you let it, it will have a perfecting work in you that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. You see, you become a companion in the patience of Jesus Christ and with that patience it makes you to become like him Romans 8:29 it conforms you to his image do you see it you go through tribulations what's happening is your faith is on trial during those times and what God is trying to develop in you is the patience of Jesus Christ because when you get the patience of Jesus Christ and you become a companion in his patience it makes you to where spiritually you are wanting nothing lacking nothing you have become like him so in verse 9 of Revelation 1 you can turn back there John the recipient of the revelation gives us some great perspective about ourselves as he identifies himself for us as our brother as our companion in tribulation, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and in the patience of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the second thing here, the location of the revelation. The location of the revelation. 
In the rest of verse 9 and verse 10, John lets us know some key things about his location when he received the revelation. First of all, geographically, John says that he was in the isle that is called Patmos. Okay, and you might read that and think, well, you know, here's this old codger and and he's gone and and retired on this resort island out there to play shuffleboard and sit on the park bench eating pistachio nuts and all that kind of stuff. But first of all, Patmos isn't that kind of an island, and as we'll see here in just a second, he's not there because he's retired from anything. The Isle of of Patmos was a, a, a small, rocky, inhospitable island that was about 15 miles off of the coast of Ephesus. And folks, during that time, the Isle of Patmos was anything but a resort. About the only thing that had even brought civilization to the island anyway was the fact that there was mining that took place on it. And, and John is there not by choice. For, for many years, he, he had pastored, just 15 miles away from Patmos, he pastored the church at Ephesus. And when Domitian, the Roman emperor, found that one of Jesus' 12 apostles was still alive and was still preaching the Word of God and still giving the testimony of how Jesus Christ had changed his life and how he would do the same for all of the people who would receive him, Domitian wanted to put an end to it. And John tells you in verse 9 that that's why he was in Patmos. He says it was for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mean, now, now think about this, because I mean, this is, this is beautiful here. Here is John. 90 years old, and the dude is still a force to reckon with. Are you you hearing that? 90 years of age, and they still got to try to find a way to shut this guy up, to shut him down, because of what he was doing with this book, and because of what this book was doing with him. You know what, y'all? He's got... He's got 20 and 25 and 30 years on some of you folks who are about to cash in your effectiveness because of your age. I mean, he, some of you are 70. You know what? John was still doing it 20 years past your life. Some of you are 60 and, and you're going around thinking, well, I don't believe the Lord could use me. you got another 30 years, man. I mean, that's incredible. And he, here, here is John. And he is out there doing it. Folks, listen, as long as you've got life, as long as you've got this book in your hands, as long as you've still got your testimony, you can be a force that the enemy is forced to reckon with. And something more, you should be a force that the enemy is forced to reckon with. Now, was that, was that everybody over 65 that just said amen right there? Amen. I mean, here it is. In an attempt to shut John up, the Roman government under Domitian, banished John to exile on this virtually uninhabited island. I mean, and the idea here is it's kind of like, you know, what, what damage can he do to us here? I mean, this is going to be better. If we, you know, if we kill him, we're going to get a lot of people up in an uproar. And, you know, so why don't we just we just send this guy to, to Patmos? No, you know, nobody, nobody lives in Patmos. And, you know, what? he'll never do anything there. I want you to notice that there's actually a double fulfillment for while for why John is in the Isle of Patmos. And this is, guys, oh man, I I hope you can see this. 
this is a classic case of all things working together for good to them that love God and call according to His purpose. It's a classic case of the Genesis 50-20 principle of the enemy meaning something for evil and yet God taking it and meaning it for good. God taking the same exact circumstances and turning that thing around to be something wonderful. Look at, look at verse 9. John says that he was in Patmos for the Word of God. Okay? Now, from God's standpoint, he was. You see this? John had already been used of God to pen four books in the Word of God. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And do you see what John's saying here also? God has taken him to the Isle of Patmos for the purpose of recording one final book in the Word of God. The book of Revelation. So he's there for the Word of God. Oh, I know he was there because of what he was doing with that book. And the enemy was trying to keep him there to shut him up. God says, no problem. No problem. I've got him on Patmos for the same reason. I've got him there for the Word of God. I'm going to give him the most incredible book. This thing is going to be unbelievable. Then look at the last part of verse 9. He says he's John says he's also there for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and do you remember when we saw that phrase back in verse 2? Same, same phrase there. I, I took you over to Revelation 19 to get the, the, the definition. And it's been quite a few weeks since we were at verse 2. So let me, let me take you over to Revelation 19 again and remind you of this definition of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, look with me at verse 10, right, right at the end of the verse. It says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, it's the spirit of prophecy. Now go back to Revelation 1, verse 9. And that's why John says, I was on Patmos. I was there to write the word of God. And what God would use me to write was the spirit of of prophecy. Do you see this? God brings him to Patmos for the purpose of writing the greatest prophetical book in the entire canon of Scripture. The spirit of prophecy. This is a book that covers thousands of years of things in advance before they had ever happened. It's the spirit of prophecy. And John says, that, that's why I was there. Oh, I was there because the enemy wanted to shut me down because of the Word of God and because of the testimony. And yet, boy, from God's perspective, He had me there for the Word of God. He had me there for the testimony of Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy. Do you see how what the world and the devil dishes out on us because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? It's an attempt to shut us down. That's right. It's that, that's why it comes. But at the same exact time, God can turn that, the same set of circumstances, God can turn them around to further the Word of God and to further the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, some of you guys, bless your hearts, and I know it, I know, I know it, it, it happens real easily, but you know what? Some of you, you, you get so bummed because... 
your circumstances are keeping you from your effectiveness in, in the Lord's work. And, and again, from the devil's perspective, that's exactly why you've got the circumstances that you've got in your life. But listen, from God's perspective, you have the circumstances that you have in your life right now for the purpose of allowing you to be effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you seeing that? The very thing that you're looking at right now that says, if only this wasn't in my life, I could be used by God. God says, I've got those things in your life so you can be used of me. So listen, y'all. Grab John's perspective on this thing and don't let yourself get defeated. Don't get yourself on the Isle of Patmos all isolated and I just have nobody to reach. Man, the circumstances that God has you in, do you understand? He has brought all kinds of opportunity all around you because of your circumstances to be effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize? And again, I don't want to make it sound like you know some of you guys aren't going through stuff because I... I know some of you guys are facing major things, but you know what? I, I doubt that anybody in here this morning is going through more of an impossible set of circumstances as far as the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ that John was going through here. And yet, do you realize this? 1,900 years later, do you realize that we're sitting here this morning holding in our hands the result of the seemingly impossible situation and it was what the devil attempted to shut him down. And yet God took that same set of circumstances and opened up through the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy, what we could have had no other way. And maybe there's some people, maybe there's a ministry that God's trying to develop in your life through the set of circumstances that you find yourself in right now. You say, now, okay, no, no, wait, wait just a, a minute, okay, if... I understand how the world and the devil will come against me because of the Word of God, but but over there in that Revelation 19.10 thing, if the testimony of Jesus Christ is the the spirit of prophecy, well, I'm certainly not a prophet, so how does, how does this apply to me? And, and I understand in the strictest sense of the word, you may not be a prophet, but do you realize that every time that you have the opportunity of giving your testimony of how Jesus Christ saved you, you understand that it is the spirit of prophecy? Because what, what, what do you say when you give your testimony? What, what you say, something along the lines, I mean, basically our testimony is all, all the same. We say something like, you know, I, I was a sinner and, and I was on my way to hell. I didn't know anything about God. And all of a sudden I heard the word of God. I heard the gospel. I, I heard how God had become a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he did that for the purpose of dying for my sin. I understand that he was buried and he rose again the third day. And you know what? God opened my eyes, and at that time, I opened my heart and received His payment for my sin. And now, here it comes. And now, I will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And you know what you just did? You just prophesied, didn't you? You just foretold the future. It's the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus Christ in your life, is you now know where you're going when you die. You didn't know that before, did you? He gave you the testimony of Jesus Christ, the, the spirit of prophecy. And you know what? There's a lot of people that that will drive them crazy. The fact that you know that you're going to heaven. And you know what? You'll probably receive some persecution 
from some people when you give the testimony of Jesus Christ in your life. So th- that's John's location geographically or, or physically. But in verse 9, in the aisle, he was not only in the aisle. Verse 10 says that he was in the Spirit. Geographically and physically, he was in Patmos around 95 A.D. Spiritually, he was in heaven on the Lord's day. Now, be very careful about reading things that aren't there into verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we just kind of casually read over that, and we think that he was just in the midst of some great spiritual high on a particular Sunday. And, you know, I've had a few of those in my day, haven't you? You know, you just get on a kind of a spiritual buzz on on some Sunday because you've been able to gather with God's people and you've heard the teaching of the Word of God. You've been able to lift your voice and and all of that. And a lot of people read through that and think, well, you know, John must have had a great day in church on on that day. But you know what? Verse 10 doesn't have anything to do with any of that. First of all, being in the Spirit that he's, he's talking about here, the Bible says that the Spirit is in every believer in Jesus Christ. And every believer in Jesus Christ is in the Spirit. Okay, It's not like he was on some spiritual buzz here. Okay. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And just so that there's no confusion about that, he says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is None of his. In other words, you're not even saved. So every believer, the Scripture teaches, every true believer in Jesus Christ is in the Spirit. That's not what he's talking about here. And he's also not talking about Sunday. A lot of times we hear people refer to to Sunday as the Lord's Day. And, and that's, that's no problem. I mean, they, they're free to do that. But just because people in the 20th century call Sunday the Lord's Day... Please do not force that definition into the Scripture because nowhere, count them, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the entire Bible does the Bible ever refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. I know it's the day that He rose from the dead, but the Scripture does not call Sunday the Lord's Day. Biblically, Sunday is called the first day of the week, and it is called that consistently all through the New Testament. The Lord's Day is something that is referred to hundreds of times in the Bible. In fact, we took three messages to talk about it when we came to verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1 because the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord, is the theme of the entire Bible. Do you remember when we talked about that? And we saw that specifically the day of the Lord is the actual day the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and sets His foot on the Mount of Olives at His second coming. That time when He is going to come and annihilate His enemies and Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit for a a thousand years. Specifically, that is the day of the Lord. But we also saw that generally, or in in a general sense, the term the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day, refers to an actual time period that includes everything that takes place after the rapture of the church all the way to the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So basically, when we're talking about the Lord's Day, we're talking about the tribulation period, 
which culminates with the second coming of Christ and then the establishment of the millennial kingdom. All of those are included in the general time period that is referred to in Scripture as the day of the Lord. So, now let's go back to verse 10 and let's plug that in. You know what John is letting us know here in verse 10? He's letting us know that though geographically and physically he was in the Isle of Patmos, spiritually, what had happened is the Spirit of God had catapulted him forward or transported him forward in time into another dimension of time. The Spirit of God has catapulted him to the time of the day of the Lord. And at this period of time, he is in the very presence of Jesus Christ. The time period is the day of the Lord. Now, someone says, man, man, how, I mean, you really believe all that? I mean, how in the world can it be that he can be in one place geographically and physically on this earth and be in another place spiritually? Well, you know what? For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not real difficult to comprehend, is it? Because the same thing is true of us, right? Geographically, all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, at this very moment, geographically and physically, we are in First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, Ohio, on the earth. But spiritually, where are we? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says that we are seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm here, but I'm there. So hey, this is no big stretch. You're here, but at the same time, spiritually, you're there. And John was in Patmos in 95 A.D., and yet at the same time was in heaven at the time of the day of the Lord. And when we get to verse 19 tonight, you'll see why all of what he's saying in verse 10 is so significant. But here is John. And spiritually, he's been lifted into heaven. And he says in verse 10, And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, and it's the trumpet-like voice of the Lord Jesus Christ that commands your attention. And we'll see later on in, in this passage why that voice is so great. He said, I heard a great voice. You say, well, how do you know that it's the voice of Jesus Christ? Well, he identifies himself in verse 11 saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And there can be no question about who this is. It's the same way the Lord Jesus Christ Identified himself last week when we covered verse 8. You remember that? Where he tells John the same basic thing. I am Alpha and Omega. And look at what he says to John. He tells John, What thou seest, the middle of verse 11, and what thou seest, write in a book. And I want to make sure that you're catching this because this is very important. The revelation that John received wasn't a dream it wasn't a vision. It wasn't some hypnotic parable. It was something that John actually saw. Jesus says to him in verse 11, What thou seest, write in a book. Look back at the end of verse 2. John says that he bore record of all things that he saw. Look at verse 12. And I turned to see, the end of verse 12, and being turned, I saw, verse 7, 
And when I, or verse 17, and when I saw him, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest, the end of verse 20, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest, seven times in this one chapter, John makes reference to something that he actually saw. And the Lord says, what you see, John, write in a book. And of course, we now call it the book of Revelation. And notice next, the destination of the Revelation. Verse 11 goes on, the destination of the Revelation. He says, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. That's the destination of the Revelation, the seven churches. But you'll notice as we get into these seven churches beginning next Sunday morning, that there's three applications that you need to be aware of concerning these seven churches. First of all, historically, these were seven literal historical churches that were in existence in 95 A.D. and what we now refer to as Asia Minor, even more specifically, the area that corresponds to our modern Turkey. And we'll begin to see as we start looking at these seven churches next week that there are some things we need to see concerning them inspirationally. We'll find that that these seven churches that he talks about are, and the characteristics of these churches are characteristics of churches today. And we can look at these churches and we can learn some great spiritual lessons. We can heed some great spiritual warnings. We'll be able to look at these churches and see the seven strategies that Satan is trying to use against the church of Jesus Christ through the church age. I mean, there's all kinds of spiritual lessons that we can learn from these seven churches that have application to our church, that have application to our lives individually. And we can also apply these seven churches doctrinally. What we'll find is that these seven churches, as our Lord addresses them specifically and individually in chapters 2 and 3, those seven churches are actually representative of seven periods in the history of church, uh, of the church uh, age. They, they pick up basically where the book of Acts leaves off. The book of Acts is a history book. And where it leaves off, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, pictured in these seven churches, God picks that thing up and He brings you through and outlines for you through those seven letters the history of the church which culminates with the rapture which coincidentally enough as soon as the letter representing the seventh period of church history comes to an end in chapter 3 and verse 22, Revelation chapter 4, 1 is the rapture of the church. So, that's the destination of the Revelation, the seven churches. And I thought we were going to get further than, than this this morning. We're going to need to, to cash it in right now. But what we've done is I've, I've brought you now to the point Okay, don't 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 pack up because we still will look at the conclusion. Okay, but but now now get your bearings here. What we've been doing is John has been giving us all of the details that God knew we had to have to get those things under our belt. Because what we're about to do now is John is about to show us the person of the revelation, the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to look at. Tonight, but I, I do want you to. I do want you to look at this. Would, would you look back at verse ten? 
what John says? You see it in the middle of the verse. John heard something. He says, I, I heard in verse 10. And, and drop down to verse 12. You see it. I turned. Look down at verse 17. I saw. And then the next part of verse 17, he says, I fell. Okay, and you got that? I heard. I turned. I saw. And I fell. You know what? That's a, that's a great description of how a person comes to Jesus Christ. The, the Bible says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And John says, I heard. You see, and God brought you here today to hear a message from the Word of God. Then John says, I turned. You, see, you remember, he, the voice that he heard was behind him. You know what? Every single one of us are moving in our life away from God. We hear His voice and the ball's in your court. Will you turn toward the voice that you've heard? And John says, I turned and I saw. And you see, when you really see Jesus Christ, for who He is. We all have the same response. We all fall before Him in humility. And we call upon His name to save us. God's brought you. You've heard. Will you turn so that you can see? Will you fall before Him in humility and call upon His name as the only name that can save you. The Scripture says, there is none under the name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus Christ took your sin on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, which is eternal separation from God in hell. You've heard. Now, will you turn? And at the conclusion of this service, our pastors will be up on either, either side of, of the worship center for all of you who would like to turn toward the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ that's working in your heart this morning. And these men will take a Bible and begin to show you some things from the Word of God about who Jesus is and what He came to this planet so that you can see, so that you might respond in obedience to Him.